Welcome to a brand new edition of Problematic Women. I'm Virginia Allen, and hosting with me today is the one and only original Problematic Woman, Kelsey Bowler. Kelsey is a senior policy analyst at Independent Women's Forum and a senior writer for The Daily Signal. Kelsey, welcome back to the show. It is so great to be here, Virginia. Thank you for having me. So Lauren is out on vacation this week, but Kelsey, it is just always such a treat to have you on. And every time you're on the show, I have to ask you about your adorable baby girl, Scarlett. Can you give us any sort of cute or fun story about something Scarlett has recently done? Absolutely. Well, believe it or not, Scarlett is 10 months now and she's on the move. She has started crawling and even pulling herself up in the crib which is adorable and frightening at the same time. (laughs) The cutest thing I caught her doing the other day was holding my dog's hand or paw. Uh, I took a picture of this and shared it on Instagram because, you know, the mix of puppies and babies just makes your heart absolutely explode. So she has been such a blessing and a joy. Yeah, I saw that photo on Instagram and your heart does melt. <laughs> it is. And like, we, we need more of those kinds of photos right now. Right. Like, we need puppies and babies in our lives. But Kelsey, is, is being a mom what you thought it would be or what you expected it to be? You know, you probably don't hear this answer too much, but I would say yes, motherhood is exactly what I expected it to be. Um, in that regard, it's been the hardest thing that I've ever done, but also the most rewarding and the most beautiful thing that I've ever done. Um, over the past 10 months, I, there have been so many logistical and emotional challenges of being a new mom, especially one who is trying to work at the same time in the middle of a global pandemic. I mean, between the COVID situation and uh, for those who don't know, my daughter had a two month stay in the NICU. She arrived two months early. I've, I've had an unconventional introduction to motherhood, but even with all this chaos, um, it, it has in many ways been what I expected. And that is like, just when you're feeling so exhausted and overwhelmed that you don't want to get out of bed when your baby's crying, you know, you have tired eyes and you walk into her room and it's just like the biggest smile on her face waiting for you. And those moments just make all of the hard times worth it. It makes everything okay. And, um, So in that regard, yeah, motherhood has, it's been hard, but it's been uh, my greatest source of joy, my greatest source of purpose that I've ever had. And I wouldn't trade it for the world. Uh, I love that. And I think it's so good just to hear like that, that perspective, because sometimes I think we too often hear that just, I'm so tired. This is so stressful. Like it's, it's good to be uh, reminded of the full picture that amidst the craziness of life, that there is such uh, just, yeah, really indescribable beauty of being a mom. So, oh, Kelsey, we could spend the entire <laughs> podcast talking about motherhood and your is daughter. That what you wanted to do? <laughs> <laughs> I would love to, <laughs> but we do have a pretty fantastic show plan for today. So can you give us the rundown of what we have queued up? All right, that is true. So up on today's edition of Problematic Women, we will be discussing Planned Parenthood finally admitting that its founder, Margaret Sanger, was a racist. We also will be joined by the Heritage Foundation's Olivia Enos to discuss the human rights abuses that are unfolding in China, which involve forced abortions and forced sterilization of Uyghur women. Plus, we are going to break down the new Netflix documentary called Athlete A and how USA Gymnastics handled the sexual abuse uh, conducted by Dr. Larry Nassar. And as always, we'll be crowning our Problematic Woman of the Week. Each week on Problematic Women, we sort through the news to find stories that are of particular interest to conservative-leaning or problematic women, those whose views and opinions are often excluded by the so-called feminist left. If you are a problematic woman or just someone who wants to support strong, independent women, please consider supporting us by leaving a review or rating on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen and encouraging others to subscribe. Every listener makes a difference. All right, let's get to it. 
Planned Parenthood is finally admitting that one of their key founders, Margaret Sanger, was a racist and an advocate for eugenics. On Tuesday, Planned Parenthood of Greater New York announced that they would remove Sanger's name from the building due to her, quote, harmful connection to the eugenics movement. Karen Seltzer, chairman of the board of Planned Parenthood of Greater New York, said in a statement that the removal of Margaret Sanger's name from our building is both a necessary and overdue step to reckon with our legacy and acknowledge Planned Parenthood's contributions to historical reproductive harm within communities of color. 350 current and former Planned Parenthood staff members and 800 volunteers, donors, and supporters signed a letter to the New York abortion provider in June, which read, we know that Planned Parenthood has a history and a present steeped in white supremacy, and we, the staff, are motivated to do the difficult work needed to improve. The pro-life community is saying, finally, (laughs) after decades of abortion advocates ignoring the racist history of abortion, finally, Planned Parenthood has taken a step towards admitting the truth of what abortion really is, whether they see it as that or not. So, Kelsey, were you surprised by Planned Parenthood of Greater New York taking this action to remove Singer's name from their building? I have to be honest that I was surprised just because this is a piece of Planned Parenthood's history, not just a piece, but really uh, the fundamental um, root of the entire organization. And conservatives in the pro-life community has been trying to bring attention to it for years. And Planned Parenthood has been in denial about it, basically smearing conservatives as trying to spread some right-wing conspiracy about its founding. Um, So to see them actually confront the reality of uh, the beliefs that its founder promoted um, does surprise me. Uh, What also surprised me was another statement that someone from Planned Parenthood said when they announced the plans to remove her name from its New York building. Uh, She said, we're not going to obliterate her. If we obliterate her, we cannot reckon with her. So Virginia, this is very interesting in the larger context of the cancel culture, uh, because this is kind of what a lot of conservatives have been arguing in regards to uh, Confederate statues or unfortunately at this part point in time, even statues of our founders, who many of whom perhaps uh, spoke out against slavery and, um, you know, ultimately set forth our founding documents so that uh, every man will be treated equally. But perhaps in their personal life, some of them we know actually continued uh, to have slaves in their homes. And so historical figures, it's true, they do have very complex pass. And many of us want to acknowledge those complexities and not just obliterate them. But Planned Parenthood is saying, um, in in this case, I I guess they're agreeing with us. Although, you know, they won't apply the same standard when it comes to any other historical figures. In those cases, then those historical figures should be toppled and burned down. But if you apply the standard to Planned Parenthood, then every single Planned Parenthood building in the United States and actually in the world, because Planned Parenthood is a global organization, every one of them should be toppled and burned down. Of course, that won't happen. You know, I I don't even think they're fully confronting the truth about the, the full extent of Sanger's beliefs. But, you know, I, I think we need to remember that this is the implications of Sanger on Planned Parenthood are widespread. In fact, many prominent women have received Planned Parenthood's Margaret Sanger Awards, including House Speaker Nancy Pelosi and Hillary Clinton. Will they return them? There's a lot of questions that Planned Parenthood has not yet reckoned with. Yeah, I know, Kelsey, I agree. I I think it's really fascinating uh, to see uh, that they are are taking this step right now. It's obviously uh, encouraging to see that the Planned Parenthood of Greater New York is acknowledging this. I think New York uh, within kind of the Planned Parenthood structure has, you know, a large voice over, um, you know, other Planned Parenthoods across the country. Um, 
but it it is it's you know you you kind of can't have it both ways and um, I would love to see the left acknowledge that, uh, like you say, Kelsey, that, you know, you, um, you can't, you can't just totally erase your history. It, the, the negative in your history is still a part of your history. And that's something that you have to deal with. So well, in it, that regard for Planned Parenthood, it's history with the eugenics movement is yep. it, it, the racist eugenics movement is very much a part of the organization now. We know that Planned Parenthood puts more of its locations in minority communities. Uh, In in that regard, they are basically encouraging African-American women to abort their babies. I think that uh, actually the Susan B. Anthony president made a good point that the next step for the organization is recognizing that her racist legacy continues today, that abortion continues to disproportionately impact minority communities. And uh, she called on Planned Parenthood to start publishing its historical abortion data by race uh, and, uh, you know, release more information about the, um, yeah, the, the ways in which Planned Parenthood appears to be targeting minority communities. We know since 1973, 19 million black babies have been aborted. That's a massive, massive number. And if we want to have these conversations about race in America, I think we that needs to be a central part of it. Um, one more thing that I thought was interesting is that on um, Planned Parenthood's, uh, I believe it's their New York board, New York Affiliates has 22 board members. Only one of them is Black, two are Asian, and two are Hispanic. This is another example of the double standard that the left wants to apply to every organization. If you don't have X number of minorities on on your board, uh, you are problematic. But then when it comes to their own organizations, it doesn't appear that they have a ton of support from the Black community. Um, And unfortunately, the media doesn't often give voices uh, to the massive amounts of black men and women who are pro-life. Well, I think that it's such a key part of this discussion to kind of be continually reminding the left of those facts you know, the number of, of African-Americans that are represented within the leadership of Planned Parenthood, the number of African-American babies aborted, where these abortion clinics are located. This is a conversation uh, that has to continue um, and such a, a big part of keeping momentum going within the pro-life movement to see more and more lives saved and, and women protected really does come down to, I think, just just that, the revealing of the truth, the saying, okay, these are the facts. These, This is the history of Planned Parenthood. I agree, Virginia. I hope the left will continue to acknowledge and confront the uncomfortable facts about Margaret Sanger and her racist eugenic beliefs. Am I hopeful that This won't just be a one-and-done news story, not necessarily. When the New York Times covered them removing Margaret Sanger, they referred to her as a feminist icon and a reproductive rights pioneer. I'm not sure how you can continue to describe her that way, given the reality of what they claim to be confronting. So I know Virginia will do our part to continue to hold them accountable. I hope others join us in that effort. Yeah, we certainly encourage all of our listeners to be joining this conversation, whether that's with friends and family, you know, or over coffee, around the dinner table, or on Twitter. Um, it's, it's a conversation that needs to continue. But okay, we are going to dive into another really important issue today that um, it's sobering to talk about, but really, really critical. Uh, And that is USA Gymnastics Dr. Larry Nasser. Nasser was given a lifetime prison sentence in early January of 2018 after over 160 women said Nasser had sexually abused them. Olympic gymnast Jordan Weber Michaela Maroney and Allie Raisman were among those women that Nasser abused. 
In June, Netflix released a chilling documentary called Athlete A, which dives deep into not only how Nasser carried out these abuses, but also how USA Gymnastics covered it up for a really long time. Nasser was a sports medicine doctor at Michigan State University and served as the national medical coordinator for USA Gymnastics for 18 years. Nasser carried out sexual abuses and misconduct for about 20 years before the truth began to come to light. So the documentary tells the story of these women who chose to speak out and about the newsroom, the Indianapolis Star, that caught wind of the story and continued to go after the truth and tell the story of these women, um, and then ultimately how Nasser was brought to justice. So, Kelsey, like I said, this documentary, it, it's really chilling. Um, I watched it just a couple weeks ago, right after it came out. What was your reaction when you first saw it? Yeah, so for background, I started doing gymnastics when I was about seven years old. I was inspired by that 1996 Olympics dream team. I did it all the way through high school. I can proudly say I was the captain of my high school gymnastics team my senior year. But for those who don't know me, I am 5'9", so my gymnastics career was never actually going anywhere. Uh, (laughs) But I loved the sport. um, You know, I actually was better at other sports. I went to school and played lacrosse at a, at a D1 school, um, but I always liked gymnastics more, even though <laughs> my body wasn't necessarily built for it. Um, so when the Indy Star began reporting on these stories a couple years ago, I was immediately taken back. Um, gymnastics, if you're not familiar with it, it's not like any other sport. It requires a physical and emotional trust. Um, I, I, I think that's different from any other sport. When you're flipping backwards on a four-inch balance beam or letting go of the high bar trying to catch the low bar, you are quite literally trusting your entire life with another human being who is standing there as a spotter. And often uh, those spotters are men, stronger men, because they have to physically be able to catch you if you are going to fall on your head and break your neck. So prior to this story, uh, I would often talk to people about what a unique and incredible sport gymnastics is for a child's development. I, I credit it in many ways for shaping me to be the person I am today. Um, because you're a part of a team, so you get all those benefits from a team sport, which is so important for children. But gymnastics also requires a level of bravery and trust that's, um, again, hard to compare with any other sport. And that happens on an individual level. So when that trust gets broken by a coach or uh, by a a medical trainer, it's it's really devastating. Um, as a former gymnast, I can only imagine the long-term impacts that this would have on my personal, mental, and physical health. Um, these gymnasts who came forward and spoke out deserve so much credit. I am so grateful for the Indie Stars reporting on this story and all of the documentaries and podcasts that have followed suit. Uh, Whether your child is uh, participating in gymnastics or not, every parent needs to hear this story and learn how these abuses can happen literally in front of your eyes. So one thing that wasn't mentioned in the documentary we're talking about, but was confronted in HBO's A Heart of Gold and a podcast called Believed, is the fact that there were a few incidents of parents who were physically present sitting in the doctor's office while Larry Nassar was examining their daughters. And he was so, uh, so, like, casual about his abuse that he could put a towel over a one of these young gymnasts and abuse her while the parent is sitting there making it look like he's just doing some sort of hip adjustment and these gymnasts just come to trust him so much that they think this is just medically necessary they don't even tell their parents and as a parent that is so frightening to think that you can be so protective to the point that you are accompanying your child to the doctor's office, and it can still happen in front of your eyes. It's frightening. It certainly was a wake-up call for me, and it's 
completely devastating for the entire sport of gymnastics. Well, and Kelsey, I think as all of this came out about Nasser, that sort of felt like the twist of the knife almost, that parents were literally, like you said, present in exam rooms uh, when this abuse was being carried out. Uh, The New York Times published a really sobering article titled, at Larry Nasser's sentencing, parents ask, how did I miss the red flags? And the piece includes a number of statements from parents who were allowed to testify during the trial, and they admitted that they were completely unaware of the uh, abuse and and were right there in the room oftentimes when it occurred. One mom, um, Annie Swinehart, she said, I can't help but think, how did I miss the red flags? How is it that I misinterpreted your intent so wrongly? I wanted my daughter to get better, to achieve her dreams, to participate and exceed in a sport she loved. And I mean, you feel that obviously, you know, gosh, as a parent, you would want, you know, if your child loves gymnastics, if they're talented in that, you want them to go as far as they possibly can. And never in your, you know, worst nightmares would you think that this horrific abuse would be occurring. But, you know, Kelsey, what, what lesson or warning do you take from this as a mom? Well, I want to first off, make clear that I don't blame the parents in any way. When you hear these stories, you just, uh, it's, it's hard to imagine that somebody could be this smooth in uh, committing these abuses. And that's really what makes part of what makes Larry Nassar so evil that he, he could do this in front of parents very eyes. Um, but I think as a parent, there's a few things I take away. One is, you know, I, I think there's so much pressure. You want your child to succeed and, and be number one. Um, and, you know, if, if you're, if you're so focused on that, sometimes you might miss things. Um, and, you know, so I just, I don't want to ever put my child's success before my child's well-being. Um, another thing that I have learned is always believe your child. I hope that I always would believe my child if they mentioned that somebody might be touching them in the wrong way. But had I not heard these stories, I understand how it can be hard to believe because a lot of these parents knew Larry Nassar for years. He was very involved in the community. And so it's hard to imagine somebody that you have known for years committing these types of abuses. Uh, you, I, In that regard, I understand how some parents perhaps didn't take uh, signs that their daughter was maybe being abused as seriously as they wish they did at the time. Um, and so I think that's kind of a scary reality to confront that even people you think you know so well for years are still capable of this kind of evil. Um, But I think that's important for parents to know and for parents to hear. And again, I can't stress it enough that every parent should uh, watch one of these documentaries or listen to that podcast called Believe to really understand how these abuses can slip through the cracks. Um, you know, it's, it's, it's hard for me because growing up, I always dreamed of taking my daughters to gymnastics. I still hope to do that. I'm not going to let this ruin the sport for me, but I think, uh, this was a, uh, systemic problem within USA Gymnastics, which is the organizing, uh, body. And, um, I frankly think that USA Gymnastics is rotten from the core and a few people being fired here and there is not enough. I think the entire organization needs to be dismantled. And I think the gymnastics community needs to rebuild from the ground up. Yeah. And well, and to kind of dive deeper into that, definitely encourage the audience to watch the documentary because it does touch on that, just sort of how the whole structure of USA Gymnastics allowed for this and kind of groomed young women uh, just to be uh, so obedient and and so uh, willing, essentially, to take abuse. It 
it is disturbing. It really is. Uh, but we can't talk about this issue and not talk about the hashtag MeToo movement. This this is an instance where the hashtag MeToo movement actually did what it is supposed to do. And that is allow for the truth to come to light and to empower women to speak the truth. Kelsey, what do you think that this film really reveals about the hashtag MeToo movement? Well, Virginia, I I know that you and I and many conservatives have been quick to criticize the Me Too movement. And I absolutely think that criticism is warranted. But there are some who are on the right who immediately have written off the entire Me Too movement because it has absolutely gone too far and has been used as a political weapon against Brett Kavanaugh. And in the case of Joe Biden, uh, we've seen the same Me Too activists be willing to turn a blind eye to an accuser's story. So unfortunately, Me Too has been used as a political weapon Um, We need to acknowledge that, but we also need to acknowledge the good that has come from the Me Too movement. The story of USA Gymnastics is one of the most important examples where the Me Too movement was truly needed. It showed how one woman who... uh, who was willing to go on the record with the indie star uh, and, and willing to speak out about the abuses she faced could inspire an entire army of women who had the same stories. And Me Too encourages that. One person coming forward and putting a face to this issue encourages dozens of more to come forward. And so I personally am not willing to write off the Me Too movement. It has done a lot of good. And in my own work, I want to preserve that good. I want to call out the people who are abusing the Me Too movement, trying to use it as a political weapon because there's nothing political about the issue of sexual abuse. This is an issue that all of us on the right, on the left, who are independent, should be able to unite and join hands and fight against. Well said, Kelsey. I think we could just end the show right there, period, exclamation point. Uh, But we do have an awesome interview just ahead with Olivia Enos discussing China's human rights abuses. So stay tuned. But First, before we get to that interview, I want to tell you all about a great and entertaining way to stay on top of the news that matters most. YouTube is probably one of my biggest guilty pleasures. I really enjoy watching short videos on a variety of topics, so I'm always looking for videos that are actually educational and beneficial to me in some way. And the Daily Signal YouTube channel never disappoints. There's so much binge-worthy content from policy and news explainers to documentaries. So if you're not driving, go ahead and pull out your phone and subscribe to the Daily Signal YouTube channel so you can be in the know on the issues that you care about most. All right, we are back, and now we are going to talk about the human rights abuses that are unfolding in China as we speak. We wanted to talk about this story for two reasons. One, as women and members of the freest and most prosperous society in the world, I believe it's our duty to use our voice to stand up for the human rights abuses faced by others. Uh, Secondly, because I think this story brings some important perspective to the national conversations we're having right now in America over any issues of inequality and race. So on that note, we are going to bring in Olivia Enos, Senior Policy Analyst at the Heritage Foundation's Asian Policy Center. Olivia focuses on these uh, Chinese human rights abuses. Olivia, first off, we want to welcome you to the show. Thanks so much for having me. I'm going to share some background with our listeners about what we're about to talk about. The Uyghur minority in China. So the Uyghurs are predominantly a Turkic-speaking Muslim minority ethnic group located in the Northwest region. Olivia, you're going to have to help me pronounce this. Aging? Xinjiang. Xinjiang. Oh my gosh, I butchered it. All right. There we go. Xinjiang. 
post 9-11, the Chinese communist regime has increasingly viewed the Uyghur population as a separatist, terrorist, and extremist threat. Multiple incidents of terror were linked to the Uyghur minority, but the Chinese government began using those few incidents to justify wide-scale religious persecution and eventually cultural genocide. By 2017, more than 1 million Muslim minorities, including Uyghurs, have been taken to detention camps without any proper trials. Detainees are forced to show their loyalty to the Chinese Communist Party and deny their Islamic faith. Forced labor and torture are common. Most recently, and very troubling, we have learned from an AP report that Uyghur women are facing widespread forced sterilizations and abortions. Olivia, this has led many experts to start describing what's happening here as a cultural genocide. Would you agree? Yeah, I think this is a really interesting area because what we are seeing, and a lot of this came out of Adrian Zenz's report, he's with the Victims of Communism Memorial Foundation, is that Uyghurs are being subject to forced sterilization, forced abortion, um, you know, forced birth control in ways that are really severe. And part of the definition of genocide is the intent to destroy in whole or in part an entire community based off of a particular identifier. That's whether it's, you know, religious or ethnic or otherwise. Um, And that does seem to be present. At least Adrian advocates for this. And now individuals in Congress, um, including the Congressional Executive Commission on China, um, has sent a letter to Secretary Pompeo asking the administration to issue an atrocity determination, whether that's crimes against humanity or genocide. Um, this is an evolving part of our, uh, you know, heritage work on on Xinjiang um, and on the severe human rights violations that are being perpetrated. But I think it's definitely um, something worth exploring whether genocide is in fact taking place there. But I think there can be absolutely no question that the Chinese Communist Party's attempts to control Uyghur birth and the size of their population is yet another way that the Chinese Communist Party is victimizing women, in this case, Uyghur women. Because this really does fall in line with broader Chinese government policies, you know, previously the one-child policy, um, you know, now the two-child policy and, and other forms of birth restrictions that they've applied broadly. But the unique targeting of Uyghurs is something special and particularly pernicious in light of what you highlighted, Kelsey, that they are facing severe human rights violations today. So, Olivia, can you get into a little bit more just about what we know about this forced sterilization and abortions? I mean, are are we hearing stories from women that have survived this? Where Where is the information coming from? Yeah, so we're definitely hearing it from women who have survived this. Um, There's one uh, woman, her name is unfortunately escaping me, but she was held in the political re-education facilities where she was injected with unknown substances that rendered her infertile. And she already had children prior to being interned in these political re-education camps. And when she came out, um, she had triplets who had been, you know, housed Uh, in government facilities during her absence. One of the triplets died and the the two others had severe health-related issues afterwards. So there's some speculation that the Chinese Communist Party has been um, testing various substances on Uyghur women and Uyghur children for a long time now. Um, But I think Adrian's study was really kind of the first of its kind to delve deeply and explore whether or not this is a more widespread phenomenon. And what he's found is that um, amongst Uyghurs, I mean, the the population rate is down um, substantially in terms of population growth and the rate of IUDs that are being implanted are disproportionately high among Uyghur women. Um, and I mean, you have to put this in the context of these are, you know, Uyghur Muslims, they believe that like births are a blessing. And so to have this type of infringement is not only a personal violation on a very 
real physical level, but it's also a violation of Uyghur consciences and their um, freedom of religion. And so I think this is really quite problematic on so many levels. But, you know, obviously we're we're starting to see more systematic um, uncovering of, of this information. And Olivia, one of the challenges in all of this is finding out what's actually happening because China controls the flow of information about everything. I think a lot of Americans have woken up to this reality uh, in the way that they handled the coronavirus pandemic. Um, But do we have any idea how long these forced sterilizations, forced IUD implantations and forced abortions have been going on? And, uh, you know, as an expert, how do you try to follow what's actually happening in regards to this type of human rights abuse when it is so difficult to find and gather accurate information? Yeah, well, I mean, we've been hearing about the political re-education camps in China since um, around 2017 or so, maybe a little bit earlier than that. Um, And so we know that in terms of like the systematic collectivization of Uyghurs, the rounding up of them and placing them in political re-education facilities has been happening for several years um, and going on for a while. But the persecution of Uyghurs, um, whether it's restricting their births or otherwise, actually predates some of the camps. It just hasn't been done on quite so systematic of a level. Uyghurs have been historically persecuted for, I mean, generations now, for decades. Um, And as you mentioned, you know, after 2001, it only heightened um, even more. And so we do know that this has been a part of the Chinese government's attempts to limit the non-Han Chinese populations, um, which the Uyghurs would be among them, but also, of course, like Tibetans and otherwise. Um, but we we are really seeing that it's been happening more since the camps were started because the Chinese Communist Party can control people in the camps in ways that they absolutely could not before. People who go into the camps, they cannot leave the camps. Um, They stay there until the Chinese Communist Party deems them sufficiently indoctrinated. Um, And they're subject, as you mentioned, Chelsea, to um, that forced indoctrination, forced Mandarin lessons, um, basically like confessing of their not being Chinese enough um, and having to fundamentally change their culture and change the way that they practice their faith. And this is very, very concerning. And um, it, it does seem to be an attempt to eradicate and eliminate them as a people group. So, Olivia, you say that, um, you know, this oppression has been going on of the weaker people um, and persecution for generations. Do we know how and why that started? So, I mean, the as, as Kelsey mentioned at the beginning, um, there is this false narrative that all Uyghurs, because they are Muslim, are terrorists, which is, we know is patently false. Um, and so I think definitely after 9-11, there was an attempt to tamp down even further on them. Um, but I think that it's really fear of other. And also, I think that the Chinese Communist Party really does fear allegiance to anything other than the Chinese Communist Party. And so they see religion as a threat to their grip on power. And so that's why you've seen the Chinese government targeting Uyghurs, but not just Uyghurs, uh, targeting Tibetan Buddhists, targeting Falun Gong, targeting Christians and Catholics, people who owe their allegiance to a higher authority. Um, And so I think that this is fundamentally threatening to the Chinese Communist Party, which is why they engage in this. But in particular, after 9-11, they co-opted some of the language around counterterrorism strategies that the U.S. implemented and misused and abused it for their own faulty purposes in order to tamp down on the weaker Muslim population. And this is, you know, obviously wrong. It's been misused. And I think that is, you know, ultimately their motive. But there's a secondary motive to the Chinese Communist Party sees 
the Uyghurs as a separatist movement, not just a terrorist movement. And the Chinese Communist Party defines its primary foreign policy and domestic policy goals as well as maintaining its own internal stability and safeguarding its sovereignty. So it sees a separatist movement as fundamentally threatening to that. And I think that's another reason why they've tamped down on uh, individuals in Xinjiang. And I would note just here, this is a huge part of the reason why I contend that the U.S. shouldn't relegate human rights issues as non-strategic, non-national security oriented issues because the Chinese government itself doesn't see these as like tertiary or peripheral issues. They see them as central. Like they see tamping down on Uyghurs and engaging in severe human rights violations as their primary means of maintaining their grip on power. And so keeping that in context should influence how and in what ways we advocate for policy changes and how and in what ways we elevate the weaker cause. That's such an important point and one that I have not often seen or heard mentioned in the media, uh, but I do agree we need to start talking about and viewing these human rights violations in the larger context of national security. Uh, I know just last week, I saw this video going viral that showed uh, it was drone footage that reportedly was taken sometime last year of blindfolded Uyghur people being herded into trains and taken somewhere. It really reminds you of images that we've seen from the Holocaust. I've since learned that this video, again, uh, I believe it was released uh, sometime last September. But on that note, do you think the United States has had a strong and bold response to the human rights violations that we've seen? And do you think some of these images or news stories about the forced sterilizations and forced abortions are changing the way that any that anyone in Washington is thinking about the appropriate way to respond here? Prior to the last couple of weeks, I would have said that the Trump administration's response to the Uyghur human rights violations was timid at best. But now that these new revelations have come out, I think it's added an additional edge to just how severe the crisis is. I mean, it's certainly enough <laughs> that there's one to three million Uyghurs held in political re-education facilities. But that added layer of an attempt to, you know, eliminate and whole or in part a people group, it does kind of add an additional pernicious layer to this. And so we did see the Trump administration finally, finally sanctioning Chen Guangguo, who is a Chinese Communist Party official responsible for overseeing what's going on in Xinjiang. And he piloted a lot of these horrific policies when he was serving in a prior role in Tibet, where he rolled out massive surveillance technology that allowed people to be collectivized, to be picked up on the street, surveilled and taken into custody. And he piloted that in Tibet and he carried it out in Xinjiang. And he did it with the help of other Chinese Communist Party officials who are finally being sanctioned. And this is huge. This is a huge success. And they didn't stop there. They also targeted other entities who were complicit and have been targeting the use of forced labor in these camps, which we also have not um, raised throughout this conversation, but is another area of severe human rights violations. Goods produced with forced labor in Xinjiang have made their way into the U.S. market. And thankfully, the Customs and Border Patrol um, and the Commerce Department have been able to stop those shipments. Um, and hopefully there will be uh, economic consequences to businesses found with those goods in their in their supply chain. And I think that there have been and there will continue to be. Um, but there's definitely a need to tamp down on that more. So I think there's there's been some improvements in the response. But I think some of the rhetoric early on and the lack of action, the failure to sanction Chen Guangguo early on was a real oversight. So hopefully this is not just like one more, you know, 
attempt to hold Beijing accountable for its transgressions. Hopefully they see holding um, Chinese Communist Party officials and businesses complicit in forced labor um, as as you know, first steps or first few steps that are a part of a broader strategy um, to combat the Chinese Communist Party's misdeeds. Yeah, no, Olivia, I think it's really, like you say, it's encouraging to see that there are finally some a little bit more concrete actions being taken like these sanctions. Because I think when when we're dealing with China's leadership, it's just it's such a different mindset than, you know, we have in America. I was really fascinated. I I saw uh, an interview, a, a BBC interview uh, on the Andrew Marr show uh, that came out just last week where um, Andrew Marr invited China's ambassador to London onto the show. And he played that clip um, that has been floating around all over Twitter, has gone viral, of the (laughs) Uyghur people being brought onto these trains, blindfolded, kneeling. And he he asked him, what do you have to say about this? And want to play a little bit of that interview for our listeners to hear that was posted by The Guardian. So take a listen. I cannot see, uh, you know, this This is not the first time you show me. I I still remember last year you show me what is happening uh, in in Xinjiang. In Xinjiang, exactly. But let me tell you this. Xinjiang, have you been to Xinjiang yourself? No, I never have. You know, Xinjiang is regarded as the most beautiful place in Xinjiang. There's a Chinese saying... You, you do not know how big but China is. Ambassador, you, that, you, is not, that is not beautiful coverage, however, is it? Can I ask you why people are kneeling, blindfolded and shaven and being led to trains in modern China? Why, what, what is going on there? I do not know where you get this video tape. So, Olivia, I, I think that this is so revealing of China's leaders. So when we see, you know, this type of interaction where, you know, an ambassador who gosh, this is incredibly sobering, should have answers to this. He has an opportunity to, you know, give an explanation to the world and he's beating around the bush so clearly. So, I mean, what what does this reveal about the way that the U.S. needs to be dealing with China's leadership? The interview with the ambassador is both laughable and horrifying simultaneously because he cannot come up with an answer because at the end of the day, The Chinese Communist Party cannot deny the horrific human rights violations that they're engaging in. And, you know, the the party requires absolute loyalty. So the guy's in a difficult position being put on the spot uh, during the BBC interview. But the fact that he cannot answer, that he cannot excuse the horrors that are taking place, that he instead spends time describing the region and how beautiful it is, uh, is it's just absolutely appalling. And I think that it demonstrates that, you know, the Chinese Communist Party can't deny the facts that there are millions of Uyghurs there. And at first they, you know, and this would be a couple of years ago, they denied the existence of the camps. Then they later uh, acknowledged it because we have, um, you know, uh, uh, satellite imagery data that proves it. And we have testimony from people who have been inside of these camps. Um, and it's just absolutely undeniable at this point. Um, and so I think, you know, you're just seeing revealed there the the horrors in, in plain sight of what the Chinese Communist Party is engaging in and what they can't deny. It was very powerful. Olivia, thank you so much for joining us today. For anyone listening who wants to learn more about this or perhaps have a few resources that they could share with their friends, what would you recommend? I would definitely recommend a a paper that I wrote for Heritage, um, I believe it was last year, on how to respond to the crisis in Xinjiang. It lays out additional recommendations for what the U.S. government um, can do to respond. And I think, you know, some that haven't been mentioned during this conversation would include Um, you know, appointing a special coordinator for Xinjiang who could be responsible for ensuring that U.S. efforts are concerted and ongoing to address the severe atrocities taking place there. Other ones would be, you know, really amping up our efforts to combat 
forced labor in Xinjiang. And I mean, I think finally would just be pressing, uh, you know, at the highest levels of the U.S. government, whether it's Secretary Pompeo, the vice president or the president himself calling for the release of all political prisoners in China and not just the one to three million Uyghurs held in political re-education facilities. But I would also turn to other uh, people beyond heritage, like Sophie Richardson at Human Rights Watch, um, and of course, Adrian Zenz at Victims of Communism Memorial Foundation, who are doing cutting edge work on these issues. So for those who are curious, there's no lack of resources and there's no denying what's going on. Olivia, thank you. This has been so, so informative. We just really appreciate you coming on. Well, thank you so much for having me, Virginia and Kelsey. All right, now stay tuned because up next, we're going to be crowning our Problematic Woman of the Week. If you're tired of high taxes, fewer health care choices, and bigger and bigger government, it's time to partner with the most impactful conservative organization in America. We're the Heritage Foundation, and we're committed to solving the issues America faces. Together, we'll fight back against the rising tide of homegrown socialism, and we'll fight for conservative solutions that are making families more free and more prosperous. But we can't do it without you. Please join us at Heritage.org. All right, it is that time once again, time for the crowning of our Problematic Woman of the Week. And this week, the crown goes to Mary Vote. Mary Vote is our former colleague here at the Heritage Foundation, and President Trump has just appointed her to serve on the National Council on Disability. The council exists to advocate for Americans with disabilities and make sure that they have the same opportunities to pursue their dreams that you and I have. It is such a, a powerful organization and so key. Uh, and they are speaking directly to the president and giving those recommendations for how we can support people in our communities with disabilities. Mary responded to the presidential appointment on Twitter, writing, as the mother of a daughter with a disability, there is no greater honor than to be able to advocate for numerous individuals like her and their families. Mary is a perfect fit for this role. So a huge congrats to her. Absolutely. I want to second that. And I can't help but point out the accidental irony of honoring Mary this week after discussing uh, Margaret Sanger and the eugenics movement, because part of Margaret Sanger wanted to do uh, was uh, was really to um, stop anybody who had a disability from being born. So in light of that, uh, Mary's work is so important, and we are very grateful to her for that. We definitely are. And definitely encourage you all to uh, follow her on Twitter and keep up with what she's up to. She's a powerful, problematic woman. Absolutely. Well, that is going to be it for this week's Problematic Woman. Join us next Thursday morning for a brand new edition. And in the meantime, please subscribe and share. Conservatives need your support in the podcast world, and we would greatly appreciate a five-star review on Spotify, SoundCloud, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. It really does make a difference. Have a great week, and Lauren and I will be back with you all next Thursday. Problematic Women is brought to you by more than half a million members of the Heritage Foundation. It is a product of The Daily Signal, produced by Lauren Evans and Virginia Allen. Special thanks to our editor-in-chief, Katrina Trinko. We produce Problematic Women in remembrance of our dear friend and former co-host, Bree Payton.